It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Life presents the toughest challenges. Every day you are faced with decisions that test your ability to express who you really want to be in this world. We're told to keep saying affirmations and keep thinking positively, but what do you do when that stuff doesn't work? Welcome to the Overwhelmed Brain, where you'll learn to make decisions that are right for you so that you can create the life you want now. This is Paul Coliani, host of The Overwhelmed Brain, the personal growth show for the critical thinker. On every episode, we'll talk about practical, down-to-earth steps to help you improve your mood and keep you sane in this powerful journey we call life. I want to help you bridge the gap between your emotions and reason, causing you to discover why you do the things you do and what you can do to reach higher levels of happiness and lower levels of stress and overwhelm. My ultimate goal for you is to help you become empowered so that you can create the life you want. All right, today's quote is by Virginia Satir, and it's this. Every word, facial expression, gesture, or action on the part of a parent gives the child some message about self-worth. It is sad that so many parents don't realize what messages they are sending. You know, we all start off as young and impressionable. We look and gain social cues in our childhood. We learn attitude and behavior from those we feel closest to, typically our parents and other caretakers. Then we turn into adults believing things about ourselves that are merely interpretations from a child's perspective. Self-worth is how we interpret what others feel about us. In childhood, we value ourselves as much as it appears we are valued by others. In other words, if you don't feel valued, you don't value yourself. And then self-worth turns into self-esteem as we get older. Self-esteem is the result of years of how much we value ourselves. So when we feel low self-worth in childhood, we develop low self-esteem as an adult. Now, the confidence that you've developed in your own abilities or that lack of confidence in your abilities derives from your self-worth. If you have a healthy, worthy perspective of yourself, you'll have high self-esteem and this will cause you to feel confident even when you aren't sure how you're going to accomplish a task. I worked for a manager once. His name was Robert. And I really looked up to this manager. This was at a time when my self-esteem wasn't that high. I felt confident and very skilled at what I did, but I could never stand up for myself. I could never honor my personal boundaries like I do today. But Robert did something that I always envied and I used him as a role model. Whenever someone would come up to him with a problem or a crisis, he would say, all right, let's take care of it. And that's it. He would be so calm and cool. And whenever I was around him, I felt like he could take care of the situation. So I would try to emulate him. And as I emulated Robert, my confidence grew, my esteem grew, even my self-worth grew. It wasn't complete. I still had a lot to work on. But having him as my role model, my mentor, was a huge step forward in my confidence, was a huge step forward in quite frankly, being a man, being assertive, being more respected and admired. Like I said, I still had a long way to go. I was still far from honoring my personal boundaries, but at least I exuded that confidence that I so needed at the time. Now, if you want to raise your self-esteem, the first thing you do is raise your self-worth. And you do that by one, pretending you're the most genuinely confident person that you know. You role model someone, whether 
it's real or fictional, until you have the characteristics of a confident, competent person. Now, when you're that confident, competent person, in your mind's eye, visit yourself in the past when you felt the least worthy, the least accomplished, maybe the most failure in your life. And if you can't think of a specific time and place, think about when you really wanted attention or love and you didn't get it, whether it was yesterday or as a child. But this works better the farther back you go. And visit that memory as the confident adult that you are now. And then just show up in the memory. That child might even be surprised, but very happy to see you. He or she might say, oh good, someone who understands me. Now, tell that child, I know what you're feeling. I've been right where you are now. And I've come here to tell you how proud I am of you. You don't know it yet, but you're going to turn out all right. Sure, there are some hard times ahead, and you may not be getting all the love and support and attention that you deserve. But always know that I am so proud of you. And I thank you for what you're going through to make our life possible. Thank you. You are valued and loved. And just be with that child for a minute. And then when you're done, come on back. That's step one. Visit yourself in the past and give that kid in you a pat on the back, letting them know that they're great. Now, step two is to embrace your ego. Now, I realize that we're told to let go of our ego, but the ego is a tool that can be utilized in a positive way. You can let go of your ego when you're meditating if you'd like, but today, embrace that ego. Think of everything that you've done that you're proud of. Maybe you did something creative. Maybe you did something simple, but it turned out pretty darn good. For example, I'm proud when I clean the kitchen or the bathroom. That's a great feeling. I'm proud when I make a good salad dressing from scratch. Think of the things that you're proud of. And after that, the next thing you do is think of things where you showed off and people enjoyed it. I used to ballroom dance and I got a great feeling because people would watch with their jaws dropped. I wasn't even that good, but so many people didn't know how to ballroom dance, so they watched in awe. What did you do where you showed off and impressed people? Do you do something now that seems impressive to people? Embrace that about you. Embrace that feeling of pride and accomplishment. I once told the story about the first muscle car I got when I was in high school. I remember it clearly. There was a 1969 Mercury Cougar, and it was sitting in the center of town right near the school I was going to. My mom and I drove by it, and I was like, wow, that's a cool car. It's only $900. I want to look at that car. So her and I drove over there, and we got a hold of the owner, and I was able to test drive it, and I really loved it, and it just looked cool. It had the headlight covers that came down, and it had a big dent in the back, but that was okay with me, and it had these nice rims. So I just felt cool inside the car. It was big, it was powerful, and I just knew I wanted it. So my mom helped, we bought it, and in a few days, I was driving it to school. Well, let me tell you what happened. Before that, I owned probably the crappiest cars. <laughs> I had a, an old, old, old Toyota sedan from the 70s. And then I had, I think, an AMC Hornet, some weird-looking station wagon. And then I had this car. And my self-esteem, my confidence, everything about me. I was shy before this muscle car. I just felt inferior. But after this muscle car, I found that I felt more confident. People were complimenting me. Girls were looking at me. I drove to school in a cool car. And I realized how great it felt 
to, to be the center of attention, to be looked at and liked. Now, you can interpret that any way you want. You can say, well, that's shallow. Nobody should like you for your car. But it doesn't matter because what happened inside of me changed my life forever. It pivoted me in a new direction. It made me realize that I have worth. It amplified my self-esteem. It gave me confidence. It gave me charisma. I even I even developed charm because <laughs> people would talk about my car and I would just feel good talking about it. And that helped me expand my personality. And it got to a point where I felt great. But even back then, I knew that I shouldn't let it go to my head. So I decided not to become arrogant, thankfully. And there was a point where I had to sell the car and move on to something else. I sold the car, but what didn't leave me was that sense of confidence, was that sense of pride and being comfortable in my own skin. I just felt good and I didn't need the car anymore to feel that way. And that was the most important thing in my life at that time is to develop what I lacked. And what that was, was a healthy ego. I was okay with people inflating my ego by talking about my car, by giving me compliments and by other kids coming up to me and saying, I was going to buy that car. I can't believe you got it. But the time frame in which everything happened, in which uh, I went from low self-esteem and shy and not confident to the time I sold my car where I became confident, I became more of an extrovert, more outgoing and just more courageous in everything. Having that car changed my life, which is why I say it's okay when you feel, I don't know, inferior, when you feel not confident, when you have a lack of self-worth or self-esteem, it's okay to show off. It's okay to be, to have pride in what you've accomplished and what you have and just embrace your ego a little bit to raise your courage, to raise your confidence, to raise your self-esteem. When you embrace all of this, you get to a point where everything levels out. This causes your self-worth to rise. The ego is not good or bad. It just is. It gets, quote, bad when you lose compassion for others. Now, compassion is caring about others. But not caring about others while embracing your ego is where the problems start to come in. You can embrace your ego and be proud of what you do and care about others. However, when you start bragging in order to feel superior, that's when you're being less compassionate and more egoistic. This is when the scale tips. If you have too much ego, that's when you want to feel superior and you care more about yourself than others. When you feel too compassionate, that's when you feel less egoistic and you care less about yourself and more about others. There's a balance in between. And when you reach that in-between point, when things are leveled off, you care just as much about others as you do for yourself. This is when ego is healthy and compassion is healthy. Because I believe that compassion is the opposite of ego. Ego is all about you. Compassion is all about others. Unless you're talking about self-compassion, which is part of building a healthy ego. But you can look at the opposite of that too, where you can help someone build their ego. It all works when everything is balanced. Now you can tell you've gone too far with your ego when you care less about others and don't even care if they're hurt by your words or behaviors. But when you're equally as selfish as you are giving where there's a good balance, you build a healthy ego. When the scale is tipped and you lose that balance between caring about yourself and caring about others and favor one over the other, the ego gets fed unhealthy programming. Now, you can be overly compassionate and overly giving too, but this tips the scale and feeds unhealthy programming to the ego as well because even though it appears that you're caring about others more than yourself... This is being over-compassionate to fulfill a dysfunctional need in yourself. Over-giving is not more compassionate. It's a subtle sign of desperation to be liked. 
causing you to build your ego in an unhealthy way. If you gain attention and likability by having to be excessively giving all the time, your ego learns to become dependent on that in order to sustain happiness. This creates addictive-like behavior, causing you to always be seeking your next fix. If, however, you're compassionate towards yourself and compassionate towards others in an equal way, this balance feeds the ego healthy programming. And a healthy ego leads to more satisfaction in life. Now, letting go of the ego is certainly a great goal, but that's when you also let go of pursuit and passion. And it's hard to be passionate when you have no drive. Drive stems from ego. Motivation stems from ego. No ego can lead to peace, where nothing bothers you, and drive and ambition don't matter. So if that's your goal, just have all your necessities in order before you take that route. After Eckhart Tolle's release of the ego, he spent two years staying at friends' houses and sitting on benches during the day and then going to the beach and then eventually running out of money. An ego-free life isn't a worry-free life because eventually you can go hungry. Eckhart did run out of money and he finally had to take a temporary job to pay for food. So dropping the ego is a healthy pursuit only if you're prepared for it. I tell you what, if you live in a big city and you have no friends, no support, and you decide to drop your ego, you might end up on the street or in the soup kitchen or getting help from someone. Again, I think pursuing an egoless life is a healthy pursuit as long as you're prepared for it and as long as you're willing to take the charity from others because that's probably what will end up happening. But building a healthy ego allows you to keep your drive and your passion and your desires as long as they don't go overboard. It's that balance. It's not tipping the scale too much one way or too much the other way. So to close this segment up, build your ego by showing off a little, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Be proud of your accomplishments. I won't lie, I love getting fan mail from listeners whose lives have changed. It feels good to me. And this feeling is ego, even though it's mixed with compassion. Compassion and ego intertwined is healthy because you include you in your compassion and you include them in your ego. Whereas the more ego you have, the less proud or caring you are of others. Now, I read the quote I mentioned earlier as saying that we are somehow damaged when we interpret our role model's actions, words, facial expressions, and everything else they do as a dislike and disappointment in ourselves. When you become disappointed in yourself because you believe what other people say about you or misinterpret what they think about you, you lose self-worth and self-esteem. But when you're proud of yourself, no matter what others say, a healthy, egoic pride, you stay motivated and positive. And I know that's not easy because we typically care about what others think of us. But that's why it's important to show off a little, to regain some of that healthy ego. When people congratulate you on something, don't say, oh, it was nothing. Say, damn right, I feel pretty good about that. Or something close. Use your own words. So if you want to climb the mountain and meditate in a cave, then maybe your pursuit is dropping the ego. Maybe, you're, maybe you do want to let go of that ego and just let go of the physical experience of being human. Or if you want to experience the totality of everything there is, allow the ego to thrive in a healthy way. Balance your compassion for others with your compassion for yourself. And compassion for yourself means honoring your boundaries and being true to yourself, being authentic, being genuine, being who you really are. And yes, that could involve being more honest than you've ever been. That's a decision that you can choose to make or not. Let's go to our next segment, Ask Paul. Ask Paul. 
All right, this next segment is Ask Paul. It's where I read a listener email on the air and do my best to answer and help them through the challenge. All right, here's the letter. Paul, I have too much of the child in me. It comes out crying in need of comfort and the need to be heard. I am stressed over this situation a lot. There is no rest from the constant struggle. The child in me is struggling and in conflict with the rational adult me. I tend to watch movies when I feel this stressed. Do you have any advice? Thanks, Bill. That's not his real name. Well, Bill, thanks for writing, and I totally get this because for most of my life, I came from the perspective of a child, especially when it came to relationships. Now, where does this child inside of you come from? Well, first of all, let me let me try to understand what you're saying. You're saying that you have too much of the child in you. This tells me that you are responding to adult situations from a child's perspective, from a child's decision-making abilities, and from a child's emotional standpoint as well. Because what you're saying is that the child comes out crying in need of comfort and the need to be heard. Now, where does this need come from? Where does the need for comfort come from? I know the obvious comes to mind. We, we all love to be loved. We all want to know that we matter, that we're significant to someone else. So the first thing that comes to mind to me is that you've had an upbringing where you didn't get the love or the attention that you so craved and deserved. And at that point, you created a belief that you weren't maybe lovable or you didn't deserve attention. You didn't feel significant. You didn't feel worthy. Now, I'm just guessing there. And if I spoke to you one-on-one, that's probably what you'd end up saying or something similar. There was some event in your life where you reached out for love or support and you didn't get it. And we have these events happen in our lives and then we make decisions based on those events. Now, the hard part is when we apply the decisions that we made in childhood in our adult lives, when we say, okay, this event or these events that happened to me when I was a kid mean the same things when I'm an adult. Now, I want you to think about that really carefully because when we're children, we are with parents or caretakers that are just trying to figure out the best way to raise us. And sometimes they do a really crappy job. I hate to say it, but we've all had a situation where a parent or a caretaker could have done something differently, but they didn't. Why don't they? Why can't they be better? Why couldn't they have been better? Why couldn't they have loved us more? Why couldn't they have given us more attention? Well, quite frankly, they probably were trying to figure out how to do for themselves, let alone do for someone else. Have you ever known anyone to have a kid at a really young age and they haven't even figured out life for themselves yet. That was my mom. I think she was pregnant at 15. So she was around 16 when she had my sister. Now, what happens when you have a child so young is that you haven't figured out life for yourself yet. You haven't figured out what you want to do with your life, let alone go through any type of healing from your own past. So here we have parents having children at a very young age who haven't healed through some of the stuff that they went through in childhood, and now we have kids having kids. You've heard that term. There's nothing wrong with this. I'm not putting it down. I mean, there are situations that happen where young people have children. The challenge is when the people that have children have issues that they haven't dealt with yet, and now those issues become a dysfunction in the family. And a lot of us tend to blame our parents and blame our caretakers for all the dysfunction that happened in our lives. And yes, they are responsible, but are they really to blame? It's it's like blaming yourself for getting abused or being in some sort of traumatic situation. You are not to blame, even though you have to deal with the repercussions, the residue 
of the trauma or the abuse. And trauma could be as simple as someone forcing you to eat something that you hated when you were a kid. I've had this happen to a friend of mine. She was forced to eat something that she didn't like. It was just regular food, but actually caused a traumatic childhood memory that she took into her adult world, and she had some emotional challenges with it. So trauma can be anything as simple as an adult looking at you funny when you're a kid to something really dramatic like abuse. So Bill, whatever happened in your life, the first step for you is to understand that the adult or older caretakers in your life had issues that they haven't dealt with yet. Otherwise, you would have received a healthy amount of love and support. Now, these issues may not be emotional issues or trauma or abuse. They could be financial issues where the people in your house had to work all the time, so they just didn't have time to give love. And of course, there are those who don't know how to give love because they themselves didn't receive it when they were younger. So I like to tell people that the very first huge step to take is to understand that when you have some sort of dysfunction, some sort of emotional baggage that you've brought in from childhood, that the people taking care of you did the best they can with what they had. And when you start off with very little, with very few tools to help you get through your own challenges, you're going to create issues with your children. So just keep this in mind when we go through this segment, because when you have this foundation of knowledge, then you can sort of give people a break in your life. It doesn't excuse behavior. It just helps you come to terms that people deal with their own challenges in life in their own way. And if they don't have enough tools or someone there to mentor them or guide them through these challenges, they have to figure it out on their own. And sometimes they're not right. The methods they come up with aren't correct, or I shouldn't even say that. They just aren't healthy. They're, they're not helpful to them or you. But where these tools come from, especially when you're making them up on your own, is from survival. Many people have this innate desire to survive, and this drives our behavior. And when we make decisions based on that very deep primal need of survival, we create situations that are not that healthy sometimes. So that's another thing to keep in mind is when your parents or your caretakers were raising you, they were also making decisions based on their own survival. How do I survive this situation? How do I get through this situation? Just like children that have been through trauma or abuse, they ask themselves that question, but not in so many words. How can I get through this situation without dying? How can I get through the situation without pain? You know, that's something that I had to go through when I was a child because my stepfather was yelling in the house and screaming and kicking and smashing things. And I always feared that he would break down my door and something bad would happen to me. So I came up with so many different beliefs and made so many decisions about how I was going to live my life from that point on. And this is probably something you did too as a kid. You made decisions and created belief systems about how you were going to live your life from that point on, from whatever events that occurred going forward. All right, now that we have the foundation about how this was created in you, in us, as adults, where this stuff comes from and who it comes from and what state that those people were in when they created these situations in our lives, the next thing we need to do is figure out what need we're trying to fulfill. Bill, what need are you trying to fulfill? You said that the child in you comes out crying in need of comfort. What is comfort to you? Is that sitting on a couch, <laughs> relaxing? Or is that 
the comfort you get from um, someone's hand, someone that you love touching your face? Or is it some other comfort? You know, my thoughts are that you're looking for comfort from someone else. You're looking to be loved. And you said that you need to be heard. So you have a need to be loved and heard. But here's the question. Why? Why do you need to be loved? Why do you need to be heard? Let's start with the first one. Why do you need to be loved? I mean, I have my own reasons for wanting to be loved. I have my own reasons to want, for wanting to be comforted. But why do you need to be comforted? Why do you need the attention? Why do you need love? And some answers may come to mind. Well, I love to be loved. I like to be comfortable. And those are very surface level answers. And what I want you to do is dig a little deeper. So when you think of why you want to be comforted, why you want to be loved, why you want the attention, you say, because what? What comes up for you? I want to be loved because why? I want to be comforted because why? Now, if you jump to that obvious space where you go, well, everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be comforted. Then you're skipping the best part. (laughs) You're skipping the digging part about why you want to be loved and why you want to be comforted. So whatever it is for you, you come up with these questions that help you drill down into more primal-based needs, more survival-based needs. Survival is a strong word, but what we're doing is trying to figure out at what the deepest level needs are, not just the surface level needs, the deepest level needs. And when you come up with another answer, why do I not want to be lonely? Or why is that a bad thing? Then you dig down again. Why is that a bad thing? Well, I don't want to be lonely because I'm afraid to do things on my own. I don't really feel like I have enough skills to handle life on my own. Now, this is my own answer. Whatever you come up with for your answers are going to be different. And then I would ask myself the question, well, why is that a bad thing? Well, if I don't have the skills, how am I going to survive in life? Now I'm getting closer to what I want to avoid at the deepest level, getting closer to those survival answers. Then you ask yourself again, why is that a bad thing? Well, if I'm not surviving, uh, I'll die. And then, why is that a bad thing? Now, these questions get very deep, and they can tap into stuff that you've never thought about, that you've never considered. And the obvious answers are usually not the true answers. So that's why it's important to drill down and figure out at the deepest level, that primal level inside you, that helps you answer the question, of why it's so bad to have these thoughts or emotions or why you don't want these thoughts or emotions. Now, that doesn't resolve the problem, so to speak, but it does help you identify what's going on inside of you at a deeper level so you know what to address. If you just addressed, I don't feel comfortable. I need to be comforted. I want to be comforted. The child in me is screaming for comfort. Define comfort. And then when you define what comfort is, define what that is, and then define what that is and what it means to you, and keep drilling down until you understand from the deepest level where it's coming from. And now do the same thing with needing to be heard. Why do you need to be heard? Well, I want to know that people hear me and they're paying attention to me. Yeah, but why? Why do you want to know if people are hearing you and paying attention to you? What, what about that? Here's another question you can ask. What about that is important? Well, it's important because if I'm heard, then I know that people respect me. Oh, maybe it has to do with respect. So if you're heard, you feel respected. Why is that important? What about that is important? Well, if I'm respected, then where do you drill from there? If I'm respected, then I know that... I'm loved, or whatever comes up for you. Again, drill down and figure out the deepest layer where you stop. You're almost at the point where you stop labeling the emotions and just have feelings, where you come up to nonverbal responses, where you can't even think of 
It's so deep that you can't even think of what to call it. Now, what I get from your letter, Bill, is that you want to be heard. And that tells me that you probably are not honoring yourself and speaking up. That tells me that maybe you're not honoring your boundaries. And then when you want to say something, you don't say it. Because someone who wants to be heard and follows through with it will be heard. But it's possible that you're having an issue being heard because you're coming at it from a child's perspective. So when you come at it from a child's perspective and you're flailing your arms and you're in an emotional state and you're upset, it's going to be harder to be heard because when you try to have an adult conversation and you're the child in the conversation, the adult's either going to talk down to you and you're going to feel belittled, you're going to feel like a child, or they're not going to take you seriously because a child's brain isn't fully developed. So why would I listen to you or something else? They're going to make a decision in their mind that you are probably not going to say things that are important to them. I mean, you've seen people flip out before, right? You've seen people go crazy and they're just screaming and hollering and all you're going to do is just stand back and go, whoa, I don't want any part of that. So what do you do? You said there's a conflict between the adult in you and the child in you. This is what I want you to do. I want you to talk to that child inside of you and tell him, I got this. Just tell him that. I got this. When there's a situation that comes up, when you feel that the child needs to take over, step in as the adult and say, I got this. That's all you have to do. Because that child is seeking structure. That child is seeking someone who can step in and run the show. And you don't want your child running the show. Not all the time. Maybe when you're playing, that's fun. But when there's a serious situation and your emotions get involved or other things get involved that you need an adult presence, step in. And you may have to role model. You may have to impersonate someone that has the level of confidence that you admire whether that person is fictional or not, role model or emulate someone that has the characteristics that you want, that you need, that can step in and say, I got this, don't worry. I mean, how often have you wanted that in your life where somebody comes in and and saves the day and says, I'll take care of this. (laughs) That's what you need to be for yourself. So when you say you have a need to be heard, then either you're not saying things that you want to say, which is not honoring your personal boundaries, or when you do say things, they come from that child's belief system. They come from that child's perspective. So this really involves no thought at all. Your only thought is stepping in and being that adult. Just step in. What happens typically is that we step in with fear. Fear is the child's perspective. How do you lose the fear? Besides emulating someone that you know has confidence, like a character in a movie, I've done that before. I've emulated the Terminator who has no emotion and walked into places and felt confident, like impervious to pain, impervious to anything that happens. And that made me feel good. I just stepped into that person. I stepped into that role. Who it is for you, will you'll have to define for yourself. But if fear kicks in, that's when you drill down again and you say, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? If I speak up, what's the worst that could happen? Take yourself to the worst case scenario if you have to. What's the worst that could happen if I'm heard? What's the worst that could happen if I speak up and say what's really on my mind? Will I lose this relationship? Will I lose my job? Will I lose friends or family? I tell you what you will lose when you are unable to speak up for yourself over and over again. You'll lose respect, you'll lose integrity, and you'll lose confidence and probably a few other things. So think about the fear you have about being heard. Think about the fear that comes up for you when it's time to say what's really on your mind. Now here's what I had to go through. I had to accept when I was in your situation where I was afraid to speak what was on my mind, I had to accept that 
I might say something that's wrong, and that's okay. I might sound like an idiot, and that's okay. When I was in an argument, if I got too emotionally charged in the argument, then I would come out with stuff out of my mouth that didn't make any sense and wasn't even a good argument at all. So in a sense, I would lose arguments because I would jump into a fear mode. So what I had to do is figure out what I was afraid of. What would happen if somebody saw through me? What would happen if I spoke wrong and I gave the wrong answer? Then I went through the drill down process. Well, somebody might think I'm stupid. Okay, somebody thinks you're stupid. How is that a problem? Well, um, I don't want people to think I'm stupid. Yeah, but how is it a problem? Well, if they think I'm stupid, then they may not want me around. Okay, so they don't want you around. How is that a problem? (laughs) It's another question I love to ask. How is that a problem? And when you drill down more and more from that, then you'll understand where the deepest level fears are beginning and why they're beginning. And let other thoughts come to mind, like times in the past that you felt afraid to speak up or when you spoke up, you were chastised or looked at funny or whatever. The point is you you have to come to a place of full confidence in what you're saying, even if you're wrong, because you can always say, whoops, what I said was wrong. My bad. It's easy just to say, oh, I thought I was right about that, but I guess I was wrong. So what? When there's something on your mind, when there's an emotion that needs to be expressed or a thought that needs to be expressed and you follow through and express it, you are pushing through the fear. I don't teach that often, but when you push through the fear, you realize that you survived. When you survive the challenges, the hard stuff in life, everything else becomes easier. Everything above that becomes easier. There are still harder challenges out there, but that's why I like to go through the worst case scenario. What's the worst possible thing that could happen? Well, you might just go, well, they might punch me in the face or I might die. And then I ask, what's worse than that? Can you come up with something even worse than that? Well, I, I, I might end up in the hospital and I might lose feelings in my legs and arms. I mean, there there could be all kinds of situations that will come up. And then you ask, yeah, but is that really going to happen? And at all the times in my past, has that ever happened? Well, it may have, but if you always go to that, what's worse than that question, then it makes everything else seem just a little easier. I've had to come to an acceptance in my own life that When I honor my personal boundaries, I may not be right about what I'm saying, but I'm honoring myself for saying it. It's like the day I got a raise and a promotion at a job I was at in 2009. They were so happy to give me this raise and then this promotion, and they just saw it as a great gift to me. It was also a thank you for doing a great job. So I saw the raise and I saw the promotion and I was like, wow, this is probably the lowest raise I've ever gotten in my life. (laughs) I didn't say that to them, but I was at a moment of decision where I could honor myself and speak up because I had a need to be heard. And why did I want to be heard? That's always a question. Why do I want to be heard? What do I want to say right now? Well, why I wanted to be heard was because I felt disrespected. I felt like, yes, they're giving me a raise. Yes, they're giving me a promotion. But I still felt like they didn't see my value. It's another thing. I felt disrespected and I I felt like they weren't valuing me because I put in a lot of effort. So I did say, because I made the decision to speak up for myself, you know, I'm quite disappointed with this raise. And Their eyes got wide and they were like, really? Why? (laughs) And I told them, I said, you know, I put in a lot of work and this is probably the lowest raise I've ever gotten in my life. So to see this after a whole year of all the extra weekends I put in, all the extra time in every project that I've completed really puts into perspective uh, how you value me. And again, they were just shocked because they probably never had someone talk like this after giving them a raise and a promotion. I said, you know, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to quit or anything like that. Not now, but I do have to think about this. 
but I do appreciate you doing this. I see that you value me enough to give me any sort of raise or any sort of promotion, but I do need to think about this. And they were like, oh, okay, yeah. And a few months later, I did end up leaving. They said, well, can we give you any more? I mean, what do you want? We're, we want to keep you. I said, no, it's not that anymore. It's just that I need to move on. And I did. I need to move on from that job. But that was one of the first times I spoke up and really honored myself. And I tell you what, the first time you do that, when you really want to do it, feels pretty damn good. Because you walk out of there going, wow, I respected myself. I honored myself. You know what a good feeling of honoring yourself is? That's what I want you to do, Bill. One of the first major steps in healing from any sort of childhood traumas or childhood belief systems that you brought into the adult world is to start honoring what you're really thinking and what you're really feeling. And you can start this by doing little things, by saying little things that are on your mind. And it's sort of a self-therapy because you're going to receive some flack every now and then. But what you'll notice is that when you start honoring yourself, people will be sort of surprised and respectful of you. You're going to earn more respect, more dignity, and more admiration. I don't know if you're looking for admiration, but it's a pretty good feeling when you get it. And when that happens, you start building your self-worth and your self-esteem. You start rebuilding your self-worth and creating more self-esteem inside of you. And this solves a lot of problems. Start honoring yourself by expressing yourself, even if you're afraid. Even if you're afraid to get fired, even if you're afraid to lose the relationship, what's on your mind? You know, use common sense. But there are times where that you know you've been in that you wanted to say something, but you decided not to because you were afraid of what the consequence would bring. I decided a while back that when I was working for someone, I was going to be honest with them, even if it cost me my job, because that's how important it was to keep my dignity and respect myself. That's the place I want you to get to, is to move through and push through the fear and honor yourself. Speak up and you will be heard. All right, Bill, now I want to wrap this up with one last thing, and that is that the child in you, the one that you say is struggling with the rational adult in you, that child in you is afraid to let go of his beliefs. He's afraid to let go of what's worked for him in the past, but doesn't work anymore. And so what do you do? How do you get beyond that? Well, One of the things you do is do something different. If you've always reacted and responded to things the same way, do something different. For example, if someone cuts in front of you at the supermarket and you just step back and swallow that anger, do something different. What can you do differently? Can you say, excuse me, you just cut in front of me and see what they say? Or something else, I don't recommend just going off and getting angry because that's your child taking over, but it's not always your child, but it depends on the situation because there are times when anger is a good thing. But what do you do? What can you do differently? Sometimes even just saying something like that, excuse me, you just cut in front of me. Did you know that? Will make them aware of the situation and they may not care. They may say, I know I only have one item and you have a hundred items. And they go, okay, I just wanted to let you know. It doesn't mean you have to fight for that spot now, but it's a tiny little practice in doing something differently because you already know that the way you respond now, the the decisions that you are making, the action that you're taking now is leading to the same results that you don't want. So when it comes to those moments of decisions, make a different decision. If someone you love yells at you and and they're really upset and they say, you're always doing this and I'm angry with you and you're so pathetic or whatever they say, 
instead of taking a step back and swallowing that anger or yelling back, maybe you yell back just in kind, catch yourself in that moment and give yourself an opportunity to make a different choice. And it may mean just going, becoming that rational adult that you have inside of you and saying, you need to be quiet for a minute so I can get what I need to say out. And if they start yelling again, you just look at them and say, you need to be quiet and just wait for them to be quiet instead of uh, reacting like you might normally do. And I'm just calling out these situations just so you get an idea that any situation is an opportunity to do something different. And this will also elicit different responses. You know, that same job I talked about earlier where I was dissatisfied with my raise, there was another time that I felt I was being disrespected in a meeting. And I decided to speak up and pretty much tell my boss that I was being disrespected. I was a little passive aggressive when I did it, but it was one of the first times that I actually honored myself and said, you know, I don't feel this is right. And he was a little surprised and he moved on, but I got a chance to do something that I've never done. Stand up for myself in front of authority with the possibility that I could lose my job. But one thing I didn't expect is that I would gain respect. I would build my dignity and I would earn admiration from my coworkers. They were surprised I did it. And nine out of 10 times, people want to do what you're thinking about doing but they are afraid to step forward and do the right thing for you. So that's my final advice for you. Do the right thing for you. You've heard me talk about seeing yourself as a child in a wheelchair in front of you and the van pulls up and they're saying, get in the van. And you see yourself as that child, as that helpless child. And what do you do? Do you run over and say, oh no, you're not taking this kid. And then you call the police or do you just sit there and watch the whole thing unfold? What do you do? That's your opportunity to make a different choice. So I'm going to leave you with that. And for anyone that's listening, of course, if you need to get into something even deeper than what we talked about today, just reach out to me for one-on-one coaching. And we've run out of time for another segment, so we're about to wrap the show up now. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. And to close the show today, I want to talk about your values. I have a values worksheet that um, a lot of people are getting into and really digging. And what it does is it helps you to understand what drives your behavior. Now, when I talked about the email today that I received from that listener that I called Bill... I would like to ask him in person, what is driving your behavior? And of course, he might say, I don't know, (laughs) or he might know. But when you figure out what's most important to you in the areas of life that you want to work on, for example, relationships, what's most important to you about your relationships and having a relationship, then you know what's driving your behavior way down at that subconscious level. So if you came up with a list of values for what it takes to have a happy and fulfilling relationship, you might come up with, we must have similar interests or hobbies. We must both like holding hands everywhere we go. We must both be on a, a financial path to success. Or how about we like the same types of movies? Or how about something deeper like, I want to feel safe in my relationship. When you come up with what's most important to you about a relationship or any area in life, what's important to you about a career, what's important to you about your own personal growth and well-being or your health, then you find out what is really driving you. And if it's not, if those values aren't driving you, then you also find out that you're not in alignment with what you value most, if that makes sense. So for example, if you value safety most of all, in a relationship, it's probably because you haven't felt safe in relationships before. So now safety becomes your top priority, your top value in relationships. And if you can't get it, you can't be happy. 
you can't be satisfied. So that's what drives your decisions. That's what drives your behavior when it comes to relationships. So when you meet someone who you don't feel safe with, but everything else is great, but because your top value in a relationship or one of your top values is safety, you'll never have the satisfying relationship that you want to have. But if you meet someone that is okay in a lot of areas, but makes you feel safer than any other relationship before that, and you just feel so comfortable and trusting with this person, then guess what? It amplifies everything else about the relationship. Everything else about the relationship becomes better. You become more satisfied, more happy, and it's likely to last a lot longer or indefinitely, giving you peace of mind and the love and sharing that maybe you want in a relationship. So if you found that great looking person, but they don't make you feel safe, that's a problem. But if you found that okay looking person, but they make you feel safer than anything, they're going to look damn good. (laughs) I hope that makes sense and didn't offend anyone. But values work for any area in your life. For the person who wrote the letter on today's episode, I ask you this. What area of life are you having the most trouble? Is it relationships? Is it your career? Is it your health? My thought is that it's in your relationships. Because you're looking for that comfort. You're looking, you have a need to be heard. You have a need to be uh, comforted and wanted and loved, perhaps. And are those needs being fulfilled? Well, we talked about that. But the question is, what is driving those needs? What is most important to you about relationships? So I'd recommend get the values worksheet. It's uh, on my website, theoverwhelmedbrain.com. Just click on books and worksheets and you'll find it there. I'm not trying to sell you on that. I'm saying this because I know it works. And once you know what your values are, you'll understand what direction you need to go. You'll understand what is motivating you. Now, does this mean you have to keep what you value most? Does this mean that your values never change? No, they change a lot, actually, throughout life, depending on your situation. In fact, if we talk about the value of safety in relationships, if you are already meeting that value of safety, then that's not going to be what drives you anymore because it already exists. So if the person you're with and have been with for a long time doesn't make you feel unsafe, then that's not something that you're going to need in your highest values of a relationship. You'll probably be looking for other things because safety is already fulfilled and therefore it doesn't have to be thought about as being important. Even though it is important, it's not something that drives you anymore because you already have it. So that's what I want you to do is think about what's most important in your life, whether you get the values worksheet or not, And make a list. Make a list of what's most important in any major area of life. And then put the most important at the top and the least important at the bottom. And narrow them down to about five or ten. And then when you have that list, you'll know what drives your behavior. You'll know what motivates you. And just knowing is one step closer to getting. It's one step closer to healing. And with that... Open your mind and step into your power and be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to grow and evolve. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, you are amazing.